Good morning, RCC. I am so excited to be with you this morning, to open the word of the Lord with you. So to that end, will you please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. We are continuing in our summer series this morning, The Air We Breathe, in which we have been identifying and treating the subtle yet sinful thought patterns that permeate our culture and inevitably threaten to creep into the church. Our target this morning is authority aversion, or in other words, the hatred of leadership. This attitude is very common in our culture. For example, if we were to walk out into the streets and ask a stranger what they thought about our politicians, we would likely get some fiery responses. Maybe they'd say, I hate politicians. I cannot trust them. They are involved in too much corruption and too many scandals. Or maybe you ask them what they think about their CEOs. I'm sure the responses would be very similar. I hate my CEO. He spends millions of dollars on his personal private vacations and his private jets. Why work so hard just to live paycheck to paycheck? Another example of authority aversion in our culture is the mindset of, I don't need leaders. This idea comes from the self-reliant thinking that Pastor Levi addressed a few weeks ago. If I can do it all on my own, why do I need a leader to help me? If I know what is best for my life, why do I need a leader to counsel me? If I decide what is right and wrong, why do I need a leader to hold me accountable? This pattern of thinking removes leaders from the equation and replaces them with me. I wonder if this mindset hasn't crept into the church. Because in the same way that we can find justifiable reasons to distrust authority out there, so too can we find justifiable reasons to distrust authority in here. It is no secret that sexual, financial, and theological scandals have recently rocked the North American church. Some of you in this congregation have come from churches that have experienced scandal like this in the past, and it hurts. Distrust and fear of future pastors and elders is an unfortunate, albeit natural, response to this pain. We can find ourselves asking the same questions that the world asks. Why should I trust leaders? Why do I even need leaders? Everyone is asking these questions, so why shouldn't we? It's the air that we breathe. But we need to ask ourselves, how are we supposed to receive leadership? How does it work in God's design? Remember, we are called to be transformed by Scripture, not conformed by the wisdom of the world. So, what does Scripture say? Look with me now to Hebrews 13 beginning in verse 17. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we go any further, we need to clarify a few things so that we can properly receive this teaching. First, we must notice that the author of Hebrews was right into a group of Christians. Therefore, 
when he tells them to obey their leaders, he is telling them to obey their Christian leaders. This passage is about leaders in the church. Second, because this passage is about leaders in the church, the author of the Hebrews assumes that those leaders are leading in a biblical way. Jesus set the standard for Christian leadership in Mark 10 when he said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The leaders who the author of Hebrews calls us to submit to are servant leaders who strive to live like Jesus. We won't hear this passage correctly if we don't first understand that. This passage assumes that biblical leadership is in place. But this passage then turns on us, the congregation, and teaches us how to receive leadership in the church. So let's learn that lesson now. Let's ask the question, how do we receive leadership in the church? The first way that we receive leadership in the church is with the disposition of obedience. If we look again at the start of verse 17, we read, obey your leaders and submit to them. The lesson here is clear. We must adopt a disposition of obedience. It should be our natural inclination, which means our first thought to submit to our leaders. When we need counsel, we should go to our elders and listen to their advice. When they identify sin in our lives, we should respond with humility. When they make decisions for the church, we should support and trust these decisions. For some of us this morning, those responses are easy. And that's amazing because that's what this passage commands for us. But for the majority of us, submission is difficult. Submission, a disposition of obedience, those are not our natural inclinations. We live in an individualistic culture where self-reliance is paramount. That's what's important, not dependence, not relying on others, not relying on leaders. And, unfortunately, this mindset can creep into the church. How often can we find ourselves saying, I know what is best for me, instead of I need someone else to give me counsel? When an elder lovingly identifies persistent sin in our life, is our reaction one of humility or of arrogance? When a decision is made regarding the church, do we support that decision or do we think about how we would have done it differently? I'm afraid that for many of us, our disposition towards leadership is not one of obedience, but one of distrust. We've bought into the lie that submission is not beneficial, but that it is demeaning. As I mentioned earlier, some of you have legitimate reasons for distrust in leadership. You've been betrayed by a leader that you trusted and you want to protect yourself from being hurt again. But 
if your plan to protect yourself from being hurt again is to forever reject something that God has called you to accept, I would invite you to reconsider. Mark Dever helpfully comments, the abuse of something good does not show the thing itself to be bad. Authority itself, as God intends it to be, is good, even life-given. It is a lie of Satan to say that submission is inherently demeaning. That last sentence is so helpful. It is a lie of Satan to say that submission is inherently demeaning. You may have been hurt by submission in the past, but that does not mean that you will be hurt by submission in the present. That is a lie of Satan. Submission does not make you less than. It does not demean you. That is a lie of Satan. Submission to godly leaders is good and even life-given. 2 Samuel 23 says that when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. Leaders who rule in the fear of God are good. We can and we must submit to them. Leaders who rule in the fear of God are life-given. We can and we must submit to them. Ultimately, regardless of how good this leadership is for us, we need to adopt this disposition of obedience and submission because God has commanded it. Our passage this morning is not the only place in the Bible that makes this clear. Romans 13 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Our elders have authority because God has given it to them. When we fail to submit to those that he has put in power, we fail to submit to God's authority. God has given us our leaders. When we submit to them, we submit to him. If we choose not to do this, if we choose to ignore church leadership and to not submit to them, we choose to rebel against God. To be clear, I'm not advocating for blind submission to leaders. In Acts 17, we read of the diligence of the people of Berea. It says, now these Jews, and they were the people of Berea, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Luke records this event to show us that we are to pay attention to what our leaders say. That isn't authority aversion. That's what the Bible commends. We aren't called to check our brains at the door, but neither are we called to live in constant distrust and suspicion. My point, and more importantly, the point of this text is to command a disposition, a default position of obedience and submission. It is a difficult command to follow, but it is the word of God. God commands us to obey and to submit to our leaders, so we must. If we want to receive leadership in the church, we must have a disposition of obedience. 
Second, we are to receive leadership in the church with a posture of humility. If we look again at verse 17, we read, For they, and those are our leaders, they are keeping watch over your souls. The author of the Hebrews is calling upon us to recognize that we need someone to watch over our souls. In our self-reliant culture, it requires humility to receive that message. This is not something that our culture likes to hear, that we need others. There's a problem that we need somebody to help fix. Right? We need the oversight of our souls because they are rebellious. Right? We are commanded to wait solely for God, but corrupted to seek out that which does not please him. The famed Christian author John Bunyan understood this almost 400 years ago when he wrote his book, The Pilgrim's Progress. In that book, he tells the story of Christian, somebody who's just like every single one of us, corrupted by sin and not wanting to wait solely for God. He begins his journey on the narrow path towards the celestial city. That's heaven. He's got this big burden on his back, his sin. But as he makes his way towards celestial city, he's comforted by the fact that once he gets there, that burden will be gone. As he's walking on the narrow path, he comes across a man named Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And, as his name suggests, Mr. Worldly Wiseman gives Christian worldly wisdom. He asks him, why do you take this difficult path to remove your burden? If you look off to your left there, you will see the great city of morality. And there, you can have your burden removed just like you could have it removed if you went to the celestial city. But the thing is, it's not as far, and the path isn't as difficult. Take this, this path and ignore all the hardship that lies ahead. And so Christian, like any of us would, because he's corrupted by sin and cannot wait solely for God, he takes this path, and he begins moving to his left and going towards morality. As he begins towards morality, he comes across a mountain, a mountain so large and so domineering that Christian is afraid to travel over it. And so he stops. He stops in his path, stuck, unsure where to go. He's stuck in his sorrow, will it, wishing he never left the narrow path in the first place. And so he waits there, not knowing what to do. Off in the distance appears a figure. And as this figure comes closer, he realizes that that figure is evangelist. An evangelist is the man, the leader, who put Christian on the path in the first place. Evangelist comes and he meets Christian and he says, what are you doing? Why did you leave the path? Right? He rebukes him, but then he comforts him. He gives him wisdom and encouragement and he points him back towards the narrow path, back towards where he had come from in the first place. You see, just like we can, Christian had wandered from the truth that he had been shown and he desperately needed a leader to point him back in the right direction. Just like evangelists watched over Christian's soul, so too do we need leaders who watch over ours. When we stray from righteousness and pursue temptation, our leaders seek to hold us accountable and point us back in the right direction direction. Without them, we are lost. The book of Judges gives us a clear example of this saying, in those days, 
There is no king in Israel. There is no leader for the people. And so what happened? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Friends, we need to recognize that we need leaders to help keep us on the narrow path. We need someone to call us when we haven't been at church for a month. We need someone to pray for us when we are facing significant trials in our lives. And when we stray from that narrow path that they seek to keep us on, we need them to keep us accountable for our actions. We have a multitude of needs that our leaders are called to provide. We must be humble enough to recognize this. We need oversight. We need accountability. We need guidance. If we are humble enough to submit to this leadership, we become the recipients, the beneficiaries of these amazing gifts. Ephesians 4 says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God gives us the gift of leadership to help us grow individually and as the body of Christ. If we didn't have leaders, we would be a discordant collection of individuals with no aim, no leadership, no accountability. Praise God that we do have leaders. Proverbs 11 says that where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Right? We see this historically. We see this in the book of Judges. They didn't have a leader, and so they fell. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no counsel. There was no leadership. Without guidance, we fall. And so praise God that in the past, he gave us leaders that prevented this from happening. He gave us leaders like Athanasius, like Martin Luther and like Billy Graham and many others to guide us through heretical doctrine, through reformation and revival. And here's what we need to hear this morning. Praise God that he continues to raise up these leaders today. Because we will face problems just like the Christians of the past did. And without leaders, we will struggle to solve those problems. We need leaders just as the Christians of the past needed them. When authority aversion creeps into the church, we lose sight of this. Hebrews 13, 17 calls us to be humble enough to receive the gift of leadership. Third, we are to receive leadership in the church with a commitment to accountability. If we look at verse 17 again, we read, For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Leaders are called to keep their flock accountable, but that does not mean that they too are not accountable. Like us, leaders fall short of the glory of God. The Bible is not naive to these shortcomings. For example, in Acts 20, the Apostle Paul warns, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. 
Paul wanted the church, that's us, he wanted us to be aware that twisted leaders will come who teach false doctrine and who lead sinful lives that will threaten to destroy the church. Elsewhere, he tells us how to deal with these twisted leaders when in 1 Timothy he says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. The Bible makes clear that when leaders espouse false doctrine and model unrepentant sin, the congregation has a responsibility to hold them accountable for their sin and to rebuke them of it. There will be times when we are called to hold leaders accountable for their actions. But the focus of this passage is not on how we are to hold leaders accountable for their actions. The focus of this passage is that God will hold leaders accountable for their actions. When the author of Hebrews writes that leaders are those who will have to give an account, this account is to be given to God. He is the great judge who sees all and will hold all accountable for their actions upon his return. This is why James writes that not many should aspire to be teachers. Remembering this, acknowledging this, allows us to direct our energy towards receiving leadership and extending trust. When we miss this, when we lose sight of this, we become so focused on holding our leaders accountable, on dealing with every... On dealing with every sin and skeleton in their closet, it, it distracts us. It doesn't allow us to properly receive leadership, to grow, to be taught, to be held accountable. If we recognize this, we can direct our energy towards receiving leadership and extending trust. Mark Dever says that trust must be given as a gift, a gift in faith, in trust more of the God who gives than of the leaders he has given. God has ordained our leaders And so we should trust those who God has put in place. Remember, leaders are a gift from God. Does it glorify God when we view his gifts with disdain and distrust and suspicion? Further, godly leaders are fully aware of the account that Hebrews says that they will have to give. They know that they will be held accountable for all that they say and do. The fear of the Lord helps them to conduct themselves in a manner that is above reproach. They are called to watch over us with care so that they can give an upright account on judgment day. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul calls the leaders of the Ephesian church to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. For some of you, the wounds are deep. You have been seriously hurt by leadership in the past. And because of that, you may continue to ask yourself how you can ever trust leaders. Let this verse be your answer. God has bought the church. He has bought you with his own blood. If you cannot shake your disposition of fear... Ask yourself, will the God who purchased you with his own blood, will he ever cease to watch over you? Will the God who purchased the church with his own blood, will he ever cease to watch over it? When God gives us leaders, we can trust that they are good gifts 
from the good shepherd. You do not have to be the protector. You do not have to worry about the skeletons in the closet. You do not have to hold your leader's feet over the fire in the thought that maybe something will come out that you have to condemn them for and you have to deal with. That's God's job because God is the protector. So, if any of our elders ever preach something from this pulpit that is contrary to the Bible, hold them accountable for it. If they begin to engage in overt and unrepentant sin, rebuke them publicly and remove them from office. But, apart from these two exceptions where we are called to step in, God is the one who will hold our elders to account. So this morning, let's resolve to pray for our leaders so that they may receive a well-done, good, and faithful servant when they reach the finish line. Finally, we are to receive leadership in the church with an attitude of gratitude. The end of Hebrews 13, 17 says, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We must be transformed by the words of this verse and cultivate an atmosphere that enables leaders to serve us with joy so that we can be the beneficiaries of their service. I want you to picture two classrooms. In classroom number one, we have a handful of students, every single one of them, in fact, who show up to class on time every single day. They bring their pens and their paper and their calculators and their notebook, ready to learn, eager to learn. They sit through their teacher's lessons, not interrupting. If they have a question, they raise their hand and respectfully ask that question. When the teacher assigns homework, they go home and they complete that homework and they bring it back the next day. Properly done, well done, joyfully done. When they see tests ahead on the calendar, they prepare and they study for those tests so that they can perform to the best of their abilities. That's classroom number one. In classroom number two, we find the opposite. We have a group of students, all students who never show up to class on time each day. They never bring materials, they never bring notebooks, pens, pencils. They don't want to learn, they don't want to be there. When their teacher speaks, they don't pay attention, they sleep on their desk, and if they, for whatever reason, have something to say, they blurt it out and they interrupt their teacher. They never complete their homework on time, they never even really complete their homework. When they see tests ahead on the calendar, they don't study for it, they wing it. They don't care how well they do, it doesn't matter to them. I know this is just a silly analogy, but here we can see that we are the students and our elders are the teachers. If we conduct ourselves like classroom number one, with respect and obedience towards our elders, eager to learn and quick to accept reproach, always seeking to grow under their guidance, our elders want to invest more time into our lives. When we disrespect and disobey our elders, content to ignore their advice and remain in our sin, we will drive our elders into despair. Eventually, we may find ourselves without elders because nobody wants to be an elder. Our attitude 
towards our leaders directly influences their attitude towards us. Albert Moeller comments, grudgingly obeying our leaders does not sharpen our hearts. It hardens them. When the mindset of authority aversion creeps into the church, we harden our elders and we harm ourselves. If we are people that are difficult to lead, we will have angry leaders or none at all. How terrible would that be? Redeemer City Church should be a congregation whose members are so grateful for the leadership that they receive that people want to be elders. A transformation of our mind allows us to see this. It allows us to see that our leaders are vital, not useless. It allows us to trust leaders, not be suspicious of them. It allows us to love our leaders, not despise and hate them. It allows us to see them as gifts that are intended to help us grow. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Our leaders strive to imitate Christ so that they can be examples for us. Right? They strive to love us, to help us, to hold us accountable. They are our image that we should imitate and we should love them, we should trust that, we should be joyful for that. So let us resolve this morning to abandon the mindset of authority aversion and instead adopt the mindset that we have been commanded to adopt in God's word. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that you have given us this morning. Thank you that it challenges us, that it encourages us, that it strengthens us. I pray that this morning we will allow this word to transform our minds. It is so easy to be conformed by the culture's view of leadership, to distrust leadership, to despise leadership, to ignore leadership. Help us to see that this is not the way that we are called to view our leaders. We are called to view them as gifts, gifts from you, Lord, that teach us to be thankful and that cultivate an atmosphere of love and following you, Lord. So help us to imitate that. Help us to love our leaders and to be thankful for them. Amen. Worship to you, would you lead us?